Behold, the day of judgment will come. Until that day, remember why God sent Moses and remember why God sent Elijah. Why? It's a powerful question, isn't it? If you're going to solve a mystery, a good place to start is by asking the question, why? If your air conditioner stopped working or your heater stopped working, you're probably asking why. If you have some sort of bodily ailment, it's good to find out why. Asking the question why can be a sign of curiosity, a sign of wanting to know what's beneath the surface. Curiosity may have killed the cat, but cats have li nine lives anyway, right? Out of the questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how, I think that why questions might lead to, to some of the most interesting answers because they get to the motives behind the actions. They get to the motives behind what was said. It really is quite difficult to understand something fully unless we ask some why questions. On the first of this year, we began a series through the book of Malachi. And hopefully as we walked through the book of Malachi, you've had some, some why questions answered in regards to the book of Malachi. Now one big why question would be, why is Malachi in the Bible? And each time we're in the book of Malachi, we do learn, we do see how God's word applies to our lives today. Perhaps the clearest answer to the question of the purpose of the book of Malachi comes at the conclusion at the end. So it's to the end of the book of Malachi that we turn. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Malachi chapter 4. It may be easier for you to flip to the first page in Matthew in the New Testament and then flip back a page or two to the book of Malachi. It's also printed in your bulletins. This morning, we'll be looking at Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. For background, last week we began Malachi's sixth and final disputation from Malachi 3 verses 13 to 18. Israel began by saying it's, it's vain, it's worthless to serve God. When we get to chapter 4, we continue to, chapter 4 continues to show us that these statements by the Israelites are not true as God speaks of the day of judgment. It does matter whether or not you serve God. And then Malachi 4 Verses 4 to 6 help us to sum up the content of the book of Malachi. So please read along as I read Malachi 4, verses 1 to 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you've listened to a, a few sermons here at WSBC, you may have noticed that the preachers like to give a main idea, a one-sentence statement for you to take away. We really do hope that this main idea captures the main point of the text, is, is faithful to what God's Word uh, is seeking to teach us today. So this morning's main idea statement from the fourth chapter in the book of Malachi is this. Behold, the day of judgment will come. Until that day, remember why God sent Moses and remember why God sent Elijah. Behold, the day of judgment will come. Until that day, remember why God sent Moses and remember why God sent Elijah. It's a little bit longer of a sentence. I'll read it one more time. Behold, the day of judgment will come. Until that day, remember why God sent Moses and remember why God sent Elijah. We'll walk through this main point in four points this morning. Two points beginning with the word behold and two points beginning with the word remember. So point one is behold... The day of punishment will come. That's in verse 1. Point 2. Behold, the day of deliverance will come. That's in verses 2 to 3. Point 3 is remember why Moses came. That's in verse 4. And point 4 Remember why Elijah came. That's in verses 5 to 6. So let's begin with point 1. Behold, the day of punishment will come. Look again with me at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So it begins with the word behold, look, don't miss this, watch, stand in awe. And what are we expectantly watching and waiting for? It's the day. The phrase the day is repeated a couple times here and will be spoken of again later in the passage. And what will that day be like? 
It says it will be burning like an oven. For the people of the time of Malachi, an oven would have been the hottest fire one could think of. These beehive-shaped furnaces were used to take the impurities out of metal. One can imagine flames shooting out from the top as the fire grew hotter and hotter. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel being thrown into the fiery furnace. The soldiers who threw those men into the furnace died because they came too close to the flames. Here in verse 1, we see that the arrogant and evildoers are referred to as stubble, little bits of grain stock that would burn incredibly easily. This fire would leave neither root nor branch. In discussing this passage with Nick briefly earlier in the week, it, it brought to his mind his experience fighting wildfires. If you're curious what Nick was doing fighting wildfires, you can, you can ask him later. But as part of preventing fires, they would dig up the, the dead roots of the trees because fires could also spread from roots to roots. So it was interesting just thinking a fire is not only going to burn up the, the parts of the tree that we can see, but, but it, it could burn up the roots and the roots of other trees. And here in our passage, the fire completely consumes both the roots and the branches, nothing is left. The day of the Lord would bring final and complete judgment on God's enemies. Malachi 3 verse 18 said, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Here also we see the distinction played out between the righteous and the wicked. Last week we saw that the Lord said the righteous are his treasured possession. Here we see that the wicked will be judged completely. Evildoers will not escape, as the Israelites thought in Malachi 3, verse 15. Evildoers will be judged. And notice how the evildoers are described here. The evildoers are those who are arrogant, and those who do evil are proud. So what is the epitome of arrogance? It's trying to put ourselves in the place of God, isn't it? It's trying to lift ourselves to the place that only God should be. We saw this kind of arrogance when Satan tempted Eve that you shall be like God. We saw this type of arrogance at the Tower of Babel as humanity tried to rely on their own strength to reach the heavens. And we see this kind of arrogance all the time today in our own lives as we want to reign as, as kings of our own little universes. So to ask the why question, why does it matter that this day of punishment will come on those who do evil? This matters for you today if you're here and you're not a Christian. You might not think of yourself as an arrogant person, but it is arrogant of us to think that we know best. It is arrogant of us to think that we know better than God, 
to act godlike and ordering our lives, when actually there truly is a God who created you to worship Him. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please do listen to this warning from Malachi that there will come a day when God will judge. The point is not to just simply speak of scary things. The point is to say that God has said there will be a punishment. God has given a warning. So will we listen to God's warning? Sometimes you hear of natural disasters happening and warnings given in advance. Perhaps a, a hurricane warning or a tornado warning sent to everyone's smartphones and those in the area have, have enough time to flee. But some people choose not to flee. So what, what keeps them there? Sometimes there, there may be, uh, sometimes transportation may be difficult, but for those who who can leave but don't. Consider what keeps them there. They, perhaps their fears are, dis, are, are not ordered correctly. They fear being displaced from their homes more than fear the, uh, the incoming hurricane. They fear the unknown more than the, than the warning that a devastating hurricane will hit in the next day or two. Or they might underestimate how bad the incoming disaster will be, and so they don't listen to the warning. Now, it's true that hurricane and tornado warnings may not be 100% accurate, but when God says something, His words are 100% accurate. We need to understand what kind of fears should, should cause us to take action. When the God of the universe says he will judge, that means he will judge. And for those of us who are Christians, this day of punishment matters for us as well. We must remember that we deserved punishment. There's something sobering, isn't there, in seeing a punishment being meted out and realizing that you deserve the same punishment. There's something sobering in considering that we deserve to be thrown into an eternal oven as much as anyone else in this world. As Christians, God's judgment on the wicked is a serious topic. Hell shouldn't be a swear word or a laughing matter. Hell is where, where God should send us. As Christians, we should read verse 1 and be reminded how much God hates sin. God hates arrogance and evildoing. Not even a little bit of sin will be allowed to survive punishment. Roots and branches will alike be all burned up. God will make a complete and utter end of sin on the day of punishment. So there is a punishment coming. Are, are you counted among the righteous? There may also be people in this room who are not sure whether or not you are a Christian. Perhaps you, you think you believe, but you have strong doubts, or the way of, that you've been living recently causes you to, to doubt your own profession of faith. If this is you, I would urge you to, to get help from other brothers and sisters in the room or to approach one of the elders. I'd be happy to talk with you about this as well. We don't want to assume that we're saved if we're not. And we don't always want to be doubting whether or not we're saved if we are. We, we do need one another. We need the church to help us 
in diagnosing our own spiritual state. That brings us to our second point. Behold, the day of deliverance will come. Behold, the day of deliverance will come. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. There's a stark contrast here between the judgment on the wicked in verse 1 and the deliverance and blessing towards those who fear the name of the Lord in verses 2 and 3. Malachi once more emphasizes the fear of the Lord. It is those who fear God's name who are considered righteous. It is those who fear the Lord who will escape the punishment to come. There's a clear distinction between those who fear the Lord and those who do not. But for those of us who do fear the Lord, how can we grow in fear of the Lord? Puritan pastor Thomas Watson's book, The, the Great Gain of Godliness, on Malachi 3, last few verses of Malachi 3, is, is helpful again here. While Watson's starting point is, is Malachi 3, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. His teaching on the fear of the Lord is just as applicable as we consider the fear of the Lord in chapter 4. So let me paraphrase two applications Watson gives us in arriving at this fear of the Lord. First is to study God's immensity. Study God's immensity. He writes, let us set God ever in our eye, studying his immensity. He is God Almighty. The thoughts of God's incomprehensible greatness should strike a holy awe into our hearts. Elijah wrapped his face in a mantle when God's glory passed by. The reason men do not fear God is because they entertain slight thoughts of him. So brothers and sisters, let us think big thoughts of God. When you read your Bibles, one helpful habit could be to ask ourselves, what does this passage teach me about who God is? And then, and then to praise God for it. We also can be helped by good books that help us think well on who God is. So one such book would be Knowing God by J.R. Packer. Second, Watson writes, Let us pray for the fear of God, which is the root of all holiness, and the mother of all wisdom. We can pray the words of Psalm 86, verse 11, which says, Unite my heart to fear your name. While some pray for riches, let us pray for a heart to fear God. And for those who have the fear of God planted in our souls, bless God for it. In the words of the psalmist, You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Psalm 135, verse 20. So, brothers and sisters, let's be people who pray that God continues to change us, that God continues to help us to know Him more and thus to fear Him more. It's easy for us to remember to pray about difficult circumstances or when we get sick or, or other things, but, 
let us not forget to pray in regards to our spiritual state and our, our understanding of God. And what is it that those who fear the Lord can look forward to? Those who fear the Lord can hope for the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in its wings. The sun is hotter than a fiery furnace, but the sun is a picture of blessing and not of judgment. After a cold night, we look forward to, to a sunrise and the warmth of the sun. The question can be raised, how directly should we relate the Son of Righteousness to, to God or to Jesus Christ? At the very least, the sun is a picture of blessings that only Jesus brings. Several in church history, such as John Calvin, have taken the Son of Righteousness to be very clearly pointing to Jesus Christ. This would fit with pictures of the light that Christ brings at His coming. The passage in, in Luke that you heard read earlier in the service also speaks of the sunrise visiting us from on high as it speaks of Jesus. This idea of bringing healing would fit with what Christ did when He was on earth. Christ brought healing and protection. So what is the response to this, this good news? Verse 2 considers, continues by saying that you should go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now perhaps you haven't seen calves leap before, so it's a bit difficult to imagine. But, but maybe you've seen videos of a rodeo. Those are calves that grew up in, to become bulls, right? So bulls in the rodeo certainly can leap, certainly can jump. They're trying to buck off their rider. They're, they're not happy bulls. But imagine those rodeo bulls if they were young, well-fed, and treated well. Imagine young rodeo bulls jumping out of happiness and not out of anger. For those who fear God, there's a, a leaping calf kind of excitement and enjoyment of God. God delivers us from the punishment that we deserve, and He abundantly blesses us, and we have every reason for joy. Not just simply taking a, a stroll in the park kind of joy, but an overflowing leaping and, and jumping kind of joy. Uh, I, I want to go and jump up and down on a trampoline kind of happiness. So that overflowing leaping and jumping kind of joy is the joy that only Jesus brings as he brought healing. So in contrast to the punishment shown towards the wicked, the Son of Righteousness would bring joy, would bring healing. Then in verse 3 is the picture of the righteous treading down on the wicked, as the wicked are like ashes on the ground. In keeping with the imagery of a fire and a furnace, the wicked have been burnt up and all that is left are their ashes. And now those who fear the Lord tread on the ashes. At verse this image may seem a bit strange to us and even a bit distasteful. When a, when a person dies, we normally try to do something honorable with the ashes. Some people may put their, these ashes in a special place of honor 
Others may seek to follow the wishes of the person who died and throwing the ashes into the ocean or some, some other place that was special in this person's life. So I imagine we would all refrain from stepping on the ashes of a dead person. But we must remember again what God is trying to, to show us here, what God is trying to teach us. We must remember God's attitude towards evil. Evil must be completely judged. Evil should not be honored and, and evil will be defeated. And so this picture of treading on the ashes is in agreement with God that, that God's judgment is just. When the day of the Lord comes, those who fear the Lord will take part in it. We will be both rejoicing as those who have been delivered from judgment and looking towards God with an attitude of fear and respect for doing what is just and right. Consider the saints in the book of Revelation who had been slain for their faith in the true God crying out in Revelation 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's so easy for us to be distracted by this world. It's, it's really unlikely that any of us long for God's judgment with the same clarity as the martyred saints pictured in the book of Revelation. But they do have something to teach us. It's good to cry to God for his judgment, and he will be just. As we heard last week in Malachi 3, verse 17, God knows whose who's are his. We are his treasured possession. And God will spare us as a man spares his son who serves him. So praise God for that deliverance. That brings us to the third point. Remember why Moses came. Remember why Moses came. Look again at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Mount Horeb is, a, is another name for Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Both names are used for this special mountain, but the mountain is, is called Mount Horeb more often in the book of Deuteronomy. Notice as well the end of the verse, these commandments are for all of Israel, not just for a particular group of Israel within Israel. All of God's people must remember and obey God's law. True remembering of God's law is not simply remembering head knowledge. It means that we obey God's law. Simply to how in the Bible wisdom is not simply head knowledge, but it results in right action. Remembering God's law means that we will follow God's law as well. This is the message that is meant to ring out for the people of Israel. Over and over in the book of Malachi, we see that the Israelites have forgotten the law of Moses. They act like the law of Moses doesn't matter in how they offer sacrifices, in breaking their marriage covenants, and in not bringing in their tithes and offerings, just to name a few examples. Over and over, God rebukes Israel. Israel responds by often asking how it is they broke the law. They're blind to clear commandments that they're breaking the law. In Israel's attitude towards God's law, Israel must repent. Israel must obey the law that God gave Moses. Moses acted as God's servant, and Moses was a faithful servant. 
So brothers and sisters, how do we apply this to us as Christians today? How do we understand the law that God gave Moses? In other words, from our perspective today, why did Moses come? One book of the Bible that helps point us to the purpose for the law as Christians today is the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul warns against relying on, on works of the law for salvation. It seems that there were those at that time who were propagating a, a gospel plus works kind of gospel. But if you add or take away from the true gospel, it's not the gospel at all. In Galatians 3 verse 10, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In this way, the law points us to our need for Christ. The law shows us that we are under a curse because none of us have kept God's law. Later in Galatians 3, Paul speaks of the law being our guardian until Christ came and we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law of Moses was a temporary guardian, but our becoming children of God is an eternal identity. Would continue. Would encourage you to continue in your study of the book of Galatians as well, in, in thinking on this relationship between law and gospel. Understanding the law's purpose in pointing out our sin and need for a savior, and acting as a guardian until Christ is not to diminish the importance of the law. In contrast, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly as it was meant to be kept. And Jesus helped us to understand the true meaning of the law in a way that so many of the teachers of his time did not understand. And so as Christians reading verse 4 today, we still must remember the law of Moses but we do so through the lens of the gospel. We're to make every effort to obey God's law by the power of the Spirit, but we realize that obedience to God's law is not what saves us. Ultimately, it's only because of Jesus that we can be made righteous. This is not in any way an excuse to sin. If we study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually raises the standard by focusing on our, our heart condition before God. It's not enough simply to not commit adultery. If we lust, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. It's not enough simply not to murder. If we're angry at someone or insult someone, we're worthy of judgment. There are still many commands in the New Testament for God's people, but these commands are for people who have already been made new. And it's because God gives us new hearts and put His Spirit in us that obeying God is not simply a duty but can become a delight. So brothers and sisters, praise God that Jesus fulfilled all of God's law. And praise God for His Spirit living in us that empowers us to follow His commands today. That brings us to our fourth point. Remember why Elijah came. Remember why Elijah came. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, 
and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Hundreds of years before Malachi, while there were still kings reigning in Israel, Elijah the prophet spoke God's word to God's people, urging them to repent under the reign of the evil king Ahab. Elijah did not die, but was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire, so some thought that he might return. For the Israelites of Malachi's time, Elijah had not yet come. But for us today, Elijah has already come. In verse 5, God states that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This echoes Malachi 3, verse 1, which said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Chapter 3 did not use the name Elijah, but it had the same idea of a messenger coming and preparing the way for God. Jesus, in Matthew 11, speaking of John the Baptist, states very clearly John's identity, saying, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. And how is it that Elijah prepared the way for Jesus? Elijah did this by calling on people to repent. This turning of hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers seems to be representing the need for the Israelites to repent in their interpersonal relationships. Even the relationships between fathers and children have been broken. And the even more central relationship between the, the children of Israel and their heavenly father also has been broken. John the Baptist came to fulfill the words of Malachi. The angel speaking to John the Baptist's father in Luke 1 said, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so the next prophet that we read after Malachi, that we read of after Malachi, after 400 years of waiting, is the prophet who had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord. Not only would John the Baptist turn the hearts of children to their fathers, but he would turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel to their God. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is that your heart would be turned to God. The message of John the Baptist was a message of repentance. It was a message calling on people to turn away from their sins and to turn to God. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Likewise, today, if you do not believe and follow Jesus Christ, you must turn from your sins and repent. Why? Because Jesus has come and is coming. The first time Jesus came, he took on human flesh and died on the cross. He bore on himself God's wrath for our sins. And then Jesus rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Death could not hold him. Christians often use the word salvation because we believe that we need to be saved from God's punishment for our sins. The response to this good news of who Jesus is and, and what he did is to believe in him, to trust in him for salvation 
and to turn away from your sins. And Jesus did not only come once, but he will come again. When he comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead, to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So friends, repent before that day. We do not know when that day will be. And for those who are Christians, there's one more observation for us to consider how to apply today. And that is in considering this brokenness between the relationships of fathers and children and how it's related to God's warning of judgment. The same God who commanded us to love God also commanded us to love our neighbor. When love is not evident, even in, in family relationships, then it appears that God should act in judgment on the sins of the people. So for us as Christians, let us consider how following Jesus should change our heart attitudes towards one another. This should change our heart attitudes towards family members, and this should change our heart attitudes towards brothers and sisters in Christ. We love because he first loved us. So how does that look like in our lives? How are we doing in this area of our lives? Not all of us are fathers, but all of us have parents. How does knowing Jesus change our relationship with our parents? This may be a difficult thing, especially if your parents are not Christians. And yet there's a unique Christian way in which our hearts should be turned toward our parents. Perhaps even before their hearts are turned towards us. For many in this room, your parents live far from you. How do you continue to show compassion and care for your parents? For some in this room, you would not consider your relationship with your parents as healthy. How might God be using your turning of your heart towards your parents, even before your parents repent of their own sins? And I do hope that we as a church can be of encouragement to one another in this area, that we can be praying for one another in our relationships and our witness uh, to our families that we can consider how we can come alongside brothers or sisters in Christ when there are strained relationships in their families. And for those of you who are fathers or, or mothers as well, what does it look like for your hearts to be turned towards your children? Many of us have young children, and a few couples are expecting their first child. What will it look like for our hearts to be filled with love and compassion for our children, not only when they are acting cute, but as they grow less and less cute and their sin <laughs> becomes more and more clear. Consider as well not only blood relationships, but our relationships in the church. I do think this passage is not only meant for us to focus on the father-child relationship, but to see the need for Israel to repent in a wide number of relationships. So in the church, is our heart attitude toward other members right? If we hold something against another member, do we talk about it directly with that person before the next time we take communion? Brothers and sisters, how should our hearts turn towards one another? And if our hearts are not right with one another, that is evidence that our hearts are also not right with God. So what heart work do we need to do this week? Repentance isn't a once and done kind of thing. 
Repentance must continue as a way of life. We must be quick to confess our sins to one another and, and quick to forgive one another. And may God continue to do the hard work necessary in our lives. Let's conclude. So why is Malachi in the Bible? What unique contribution does it bring? Malachi ends with looking back towards Moses and looking forward toward Elijah. It causes us to consider why Moses came and why Elijah would come. It helps us see how Moses and Elijah point ahead to the day of the Lord and doing so point ahead to Jesus. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, clearly points ahead by causing us not to forget what came before. So remember why Moses came, remember why Elijah came. And for those who have been delivered from the punishment to come, let us live with the hope of the return of Jesus. Let us not grow tired waiting for the day of the Lord. There will come a day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Until then, just as Malachi points us to Jesus through Moses and Elijah, let us be people who point others to Jesus both in speaking of Jesus and in living lives with hearts turned towards God and turned towards one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for, for how you sent people, how you sent Moses, how you sent Elijah, how you sent John the Baptist, Paris for Christ. Lord, we also thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he did at the cross. Lord, we thank you for deliverance from the judgment to come. Lord, we pray that we would live lives of repentance, that you would work in our relationships, that you would, uh, that you would continue to change us, that you would continue to grow us to be more like Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.